The stanza in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 49, with the Hebrew letter Zain. And we entitled this stanza, God's Word Gives Comfort. The psalmist says in verse 49, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort. This is my comfort. The word comfort means to ease the burden, to lift the weight, to remove the burden of what the psalmist is experiencing. So the first thing we looked at is the word brings comfort in affliction. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction. And that comfort was by means of the word in verse 49 that he asked the Lord to remember the word of the covenant, the word of promise, which that word brings hope. This is my comfort. And it will be your comfort in your affliction, no matter what it is, when you take the word of the Lord and you can remind the Lord of what He's always remembered and never forgets, even though at times it may appear that way, even though the affliction may linger and it seems as if the Lord has forgotten you, we go to God and remind Him of His everlasting word. As we look at that word, it'll shape us and give us hope and the psalmist says, this is my comfort in my affliction. Secondly, we introduce the next point, which we look at this morning. He finds comfort by himself. Not in himself, but by himself. Verse 51, the proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. Why not? Because of his hope in the word of God sustains his faith in affliction so that he doesn't fade, he doesn't decline from obeying the Word of God. Verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and here's the result, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. So let's look at these next two verses, and again looking at the fact that the Word of God brought comfort by himself, in the Word of God, but the psalmist finds comfort by himself. Now, presumably, that would mean either those around him were not comforting him, or there was no one around him for which he could draw comfort. Have you ever been in such a situation? You say, well, the church is supposed to bring comfort, and so they are. The pastor is supposed to bring me comfort, and so he is. And vice versa. But if you expect human beings to never fail you, then your hope is in the wrong place. They will fail you. Likely more than once. You are accountable. You are responsible to God to stay on the pathway of obedience. If no one else does and there's no one there to comfort you, then like the psalmist, you remember something about God and His Word and therefore you comfort yourself in affliction, in trial, in disappointments. And this is what we find the psalmist is doing. He didn't turn to self-pity. He didn't turn to horizontal blame, which is a very easy default outlet, isn't it? I've been there. Maybe you have too. You failed me. You didn't be this for me. 
Therefore, my lack of comfort is your fault, for which God says that's not true. Now, if anyone uh, fails in their responsibility to you, that is something that is not good. But the psalmist doesn't look to people to be something that they cannot be for him. He looks to God alone for his source of comfort, and he finds it when, if no one is there, or people are there, and he can find no comfort in the people around him. He looks upward, he looks vertically, vertically, and he finds, when he remembers God, when he remembers the decisions of God in the past, which would be by the word of the Lord, or by the providence of God, then he finds comfort in derision, the proud are heaping upon him, and he finds comfort in his affliction. Now let's look at two examples of two men who had to do that because of the situations they were in. The first one we'll look at is Job in Job 23. And we'll look at the passage we just read with David in 1 Samuel 30. In Job 23, Job says these words beginning in verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Who's not there? God is not there in his affliction. Or so it seems as if God is not there. Then he looks behind him backward, and I cannot perceive him. Then on the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot see him there. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. So here is an occasion where it seems as if the comfort that Job needs is cut off from God. He can't perceive him. He can't find him. He can't see him. His experience of God doesn't seem to be there in his affliction. Furthermore, he can find no comfort from his children. Do you know why? They all died. He can find no comfort from his wealth. He can't say, well, at least I have my wealth. You know why? It's all gone. He can find no comfort in his health. He can't say like sometimes we say, well, at least I've got my health. It was gone. He can find no comfort in his faithful wife because at that moment she's not very faithful. She says, you curse God and die. And then on top of that, Three friends, perhaps they were his best friends, perhaps they had been there for him in the past, he said, miserable comforters are you all, physicians of no value, forgers of lies. Now, how would you like that to be, uh, three friends that come and just watch you for seven days in your affliction, and they offer no words of comfort? They, in, they give him accusation after accusation after accusation because they have misunderstood the providence of God, suggesting that, Job, if you hadn't done something so wicked, you wouldn't be suffering like you do. And they misapply the providence of God to Job's case, and they give him no comfort. What is a man to do in that case? He is to comfort himself. Do you comfort yourself? Or do you have, like I have at times, a great big pity party? Nobody at the church knows the sorrow I'm going through. They don't even care, maybe you say. Now how false is that? Did you tell them about your sorrow? Whose fault is that? I'm sure if you told everybody at the church what you were going through, they'd say, you're on your own, man. Surely someone would show up in your time of need. Job 
has no one horizontally. Job, it, it seems, he, he, he says by his own words, he can't perceive the presence of God, so what does he do? But, B-U-T, here is a, a transitional word that you need to have in your vocabulary. But he knoweth the way that I take. Now, how is that helpful? If you say, well, God knows the pathway I'm on. He knows I'm on the pathway of affliction. I feel better already. No, you don't. Job is going to tell us what he means. He knoweth the way that I take. What does that mean, Job? It means this. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job, this affliction is for your testing. God is knowing your way. God is trying your way. Guess what? God is preserving your way because He's giving, saving attention in your affliction to your faith. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Psalm 37, what's the connection? Well, sure He knows how many days you're going to live. No, He knows your days because He's giving the attention to your days that's necessary to get you all the way to inheritance. Because if He doesn't, you won't make it. Because God is keeping you by His power through faith. So Psalm 1, 6 says what? The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What does that mean? He knows the way of the unrighteous, which means they won't perish. He also knows the way of the ungodly, but they're going to perish. What's the difference? He is giving saving, redemptive attention in all that you do. By affliction, by trial, and in Job's case, he's testing him, and he's going to come forth like purified gold through the trial. Isn't that wonderful? Can you encourage yourself in that? Can you find comfort in that, in your affliction? No matter how deep it is, no matter how dark it is, no matter how difficult it is. And I'm just going to guess that your affliction has not been quite as deep as Job's. Some of you have been through some hard affliction. Harder than I've experienced. But I don't think anybody here that I know of has gone to the depths of Job's affliction. And what does he say? He knows the way that I take. When he had tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So what is the result of Job finding comfort by himself in God when he can find no comfort in his friends or in anybody around him? Here's the result. Verse 11. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Now that's the same thing we learned in the, in the psalm, isn't it? The proud have had me in great derision, yet I've not declined from your law. Why? His comfort in affliction. Job is having comfort in his affliction, in understanding something about God, although he cannot perceive God's presence at the moment. He knows something about God, and therefore, what's the upshot? He's not declining from the way of God. Verse 12, Neither have I gone back from your commandment, or the commandments of your lips, I have esteemed, here's the key, I have esteemed, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now Psalm 119 is about the psalmist esteeming, treasuring, meditating, looking, taking in God and the revelation of God through the word. 
we should go through Psalm 119 and finish up esteeming God and His Word even more than our necessary food. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean Job stopped eating. It meant he knew what it meant in Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, he was probably before Deuteronomy 8.3, but he knew this concept and principle, right? Man shall not live by bread only because there's a part of man that bread will do no good for. Therefore, if you don't eat the right bread for the soul, your soul dies. Period. Sounds a little strong. Period. You need the living God. And you access Him by His Word. And therefore your soul takes in the nourishment of the Word as you go to the Word and experience God through it. You're not on your, on your own through this. God, the Holy Spirit, is there in this process. So man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Is God condemning us for eating? No. He gave us food to eat. He's saying you can't just live by physical bread. Some of you here, some of you here likely are just living by physical bread. How's your soul doing? Just read the Bible and you know. That applies to me. That applies to all of us. If all I do, if all I do is preach the word and don't take in the food of God for my own soul, I'm just as famished as an unbeliever because it's doing my soul no good. So we eat, we take in the Word of God, and we find comfort when no one is there to comfort us because we're esteeming, we're treasuring the Word of God in our affliction, and we go to it, we look at it to find God, and even when we can't seem to find Him or experience Him, we, we then base our thoughts on what we know that God has said, and that's what Job is doing here. And then what? In verse 13. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him in what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. God is in one mind and one purpose. He's unchangeable. He doesn't have two minds and two purposes. One mind, unchangeable God. And whatever his soul wants, that's what he gets. Somebody says, well, God wants, and he desires to save some people, but he just can't get it done. This text says, whatever he desires, he does it. Right? If he wants to save somebody, he's going to do it on purpose because whatever he desires, he's in one mind, unchangeable, and therefore he does it. You can mark that down. All right, but what is he doing here? That's the question. Verse 14. Because he performeth the thing that is appointed to me, and many such things are with him. You have an appointment and a performance. What is he appointed for Job? Well, ultimately, he's appointed as salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Isn't that wonderful? But along the pathway, the way that Job is on, God is performing. He's bringing to completion, is the word, the very thing he's appointed. And he's using the fire in the refiner's crucible to shape and to mold, and to bring you comfort from this thought in your affliction. God has not forgotten you. God is not neglecting you. In fact, He's knowing you in your time of affliction. So likewise, beloved, you can say, 
God is accomplishing the very thing He's appointed for me. Salvation in Jesus Christ, which means sanctification in Christ, which means simply He's going to shape, mold me in the crucible of suffering to be like Jesus Christ. And therefore, every single affliction from the smallest to the greatest is ordained and appointed by God. And in His providence, He is performing it like the potter performs the shaping of the clay in the crucible of your life. Now, when the potter smashes the clay, the illustration would suggest in your life that's going to be painful. But God's hands, His skillful, wonderful hands are guided by His heart and His mind. And His heart for you is all love. Only because of Jesus Christ. Beloved, let us, in times when we know we're going to fail each other, first get on the phone or text and let us know what's happening. And then secondly, if we don't show up, comfort yourself and then rebuke me after for not coming and you texted me, right? But comfort yourself in the Lord. That's what Job did and that's where Job received comfort. And then there's David in 1 Samuel 30 where we just read. I'm going to... Turn back there so we can see what's going on in David's life. Now, some people say David wrote Psalm 119. Some people don't think so, so it could be him. Uh, that's why I keep saying the psalmist, because I'm not certain. But there's people on both sides of the aisle, so if you think it's David, that's fine. I'd like to think it was David. But we're talking about David in 1 Samuel 30, and this is what's happening. David has been away from Ziklag for three days. David in 1 Samuel 27 thought in his heart and he said, One day I'll perish at the hands of Saul. There's nothing better for me to do to escape and flee to the Philistines. Now some people say that was an act of faith. Because he went to the Philistines and there he deceived Achish, thinking he was slaughtering the enemies of Philistine, which was Israel. But actually he was slaughtering the enemies of Israel while he's with Achish, king of Gath. Some people say it was an act of unbelief and doubt because whatever the reason David went there to preserve his life, he could have been trusting God while he was there. But while he was there, he did deceive Achish and he had to live that life for a year and four months. Well, then came the day where they're going to battle against the whole nation of Israel. And David, whether he's deceiving or not there, it appears he may be, he says, I'm ready to go. Well, this is going to be trouble for David because he could end up killing the very king he swore he would not kill. And both Jonathan and Saul die in that battle. God rescues David from it by an act of providence. Achish, the king, say, David's with us. The lords of the Philistines says, no, he's not. Remember the song that was sung for David? Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and those ten thousands partly were Philistine people. So Achish said... You know, David, I love you. You've been good for the Philistines, but you're going to have to go back. So as he makes his way back, he gets back to Ziklag and 1 Samuel 30. And some of those enemies he's been killing are taking revenge on David. And they go and burn the city with fire and take all the people captive. And in an act of providence, nobody's killed. And then we pick up in 1 Samuel 30. David and his men, when they arrived and came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. I'm in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 30. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters were taken captives. David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no power to weep. They say, well, 
David's a pretty burly guy that knows how to swing a sword. He was a king. He was a, he was a, a, a warrior. But not only did he weep over his family and other families, he had no more power to weep. He couldn't get another tear out of his body. Now to make matters worse, then in verse 5, David's two wives, he learned they were taken captive, his children. And David, verse 6, was greatly distressed. He is grieved. So this is in addition to the sorrow and weeping with no more power to weep. The reason he's greatly distressed in verse 6, because the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself. He encouraged himself. One more time. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Now what could he have said or thought in those few seconds? I don't know if he had five minutes, 30 minutes, maybe he heard the rumblings of the 600 soldiers that were with him and he heard the whispering and he had an hour, I don't know. How much time does it take to act in faith and then move out, actively obeying the God? About as much time in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4 as it takes for a king to ask you, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? Why is your countenance fallen? Nehemiah is greatly afraid now because you don't become before the king as a cupbearer with a sad face. That means something's up. That may mean uh, treachery. So as soon as the king asked the question, he began to speak and said, I prayed to God and answered. About two seconds. Faith is a disposition of the soul that's relying upon God as you're moving out in obedience to God. If we're moving out in obedience without that disposition, then we're not obeying God in a way that pleases God. Two seconds, that's all it takes. Because faith is just relying and calling upon God. So whatever the time, it's immaterial. He just encouraged himself in the Lord. So the disposition of faith went upward to God and rested in something about God. Now, there was nobody there to comfort him. If you receive comfort from God, then you're going to be strengthened from that comfort. So his family's not there. That's why he's weeping so sorely. His pastor's not there. The deacons are not there. The church members that are there are all murmuring behind his back because they want to kill the man. I'm just using an illustration that comes home to us, right? 600 church members, the men say, we're going we're to kill the guy. Now he could have turned in self-pity and wallowed in that and self-absorption, and start blaming all the people in his life as to why he made the bad decision as a leader of the, the people, that that's why they're in the land of Philistines. You can say, well, he was acting in faith or not. He's the reason they're there. Case closed. He's responsible. He could start shifting that all the people in his life. But what does he do? He encouraged himself in the Lord. So let's just think about a few things he could have done. I have no idea what he thought. All we know is he thought something about God and he got courage. Whatever the time. So he could have encouraged himself in the love of God. Right? God loved David. Now if David start look, looking at his own life and some of his mistakes and some of the things he had done as uh, a person on the run, he was not perfect. He could have received no comfort in that, no strength. 
He could have encouraged himself in the love of God because the love of God is not dependent on how David is doing. Isn't that good news? God's love for you is independent of you in the sense of your performance and your works and your deeds. And we've said many times before, if it is dependent, then it's still dependent today and God's love either waxes warm or very cold toward you based on what you're going to do today and your attitude toward Him. That's not a good place to be and some people put themselves in that place when they view the love of God in a wrong way. So he could encourage himself in the love of God. And so there was nothing hindering him from going and encouraging himself in the love of God because the love of God is independent of David. That is good news, especially in affliction when you will question everything you've ever done and reason why is this happening. And in fact, it may be happening because of something you did. Every affliction that we go through is not because of something we did that brought that affliction, but sometimes would you not admit that it is. I'm experiencing this pain because I said that or did that. Now how you approach God encourage yourself. Well, God, you're going to have to give me some time to get this straightened out. Get, give me about a week so I can get my words worked out and my actions and then... I can encourage myself. No, beloved, you can encourage yourself in any given time in the Lord, even in a time of personal failure. Through faith and repentance, we come back to God and we encourage ourselves in the Lord. Secondly, he could have encouraged himself in the promise and calling of God. What did God promise David? You're going to be king. He anointed him as king. He called him to be the next king of Israel. He's going to be the next king of Israel. He became the next king of Israel. Saul is going to die in this battle in the next chapter or two. You can encourage and comfort yourself in God's promises and His calling to you. What has He called you to? Eternal life. That means He's equipped you with everything you need for the calling. You called to be a husband? He's equipped you. Are you called to be a wife, mother, called to be a father, called to be a follower of Jesus, called to be a member of a church? He's equipped you with everything for life and godliness. You are lacking nothing in the Word of God whereby you can comfort and encourage yourself in the Word and get what you need from God's Word. Through all the means He has given and even on a day when nobody's there to comfort you like nobody was there for David. There's nobody here. He can just kind of faint and give up, or he can rise up in faith in the Word of God and find the encouragement he needs to press on. God has called you to eternal life. He's equipped you with all the gifts you need on the pathway. He's equipped you with faith. He's equipped you with the, the canon of Scripture. He's equipped you with the Holy Spirit. He's equipped you with the Savior. He's equipped you with the Gospel. So you have everything you need. I have everything I need for eternal life. I can never look at a situation like I do in my house all the time. I don't have the tools I need for this job. You have everything. You say, I don't have the pans I need for this job. I don't have the ingredients. There is nothing lacking you. You don't have to search high and low. You don't have to go looking. It is right here in the Word of God. He could have encouraged himself in the promise of God, and the calling of God. And he could have encouraged himself like the psalmist does, particularly in our text where he says, 
I remembered the days of old. Oh Lord, and I comforted myself. David could have just for a moment started to remember when Moses and the Israelites from Egypt's land did flee. Behind them were proud Pharaoh's host. In front of them, the sea. God split the waters like a wall and opened up the way. And the God that lived in the olden times, beloved, is what? He's just the same for you today. There is no other event in the Bible that's recalled more in the Old Testament than that singular event. So we know the Israelites, the the, the leaders of Israel brought that before the people over and over again as an encouragement for comfort and strength. So the, the psalmist now is remembering the execution, the decisions of old of God and he finds comfort. David could have done that. David could have just looked back to the day of the Philistine giant called Goliath, that uncircumcised Philistine. And on what basis could David, that young man, ever think he could whip the giant? Well, Saul, you need to know I've been taking judo, karate, and working out really hard. I think I can take him. No. There was a lot, whenever a lion or a bear came among the flock and, and took one in his jaw, I pursued him, and the Lord blessed me to smite the lion or the bear. God will bless me to smite this uncircumcised Philistine. Where does David get courage? Not from the military, not from Saul. They're all dissuading him. He looks to God. So David could have been getting this courage, thinking back of the judgments of God on his behalf, on behalf of Israel. The the deliverance from Egypt, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the Jericho walls that fell flat, seven times marching around, in one day, blowing on the ram's horn, they fell flat, are all the times God delivered Israel. When Israel did not deserve God's deliverance, He came in and saved the day. That God is the same today. And what does David say? He encouraged himself, or the, the, the writer who encouraged himself in the Lord His God. Is God your God? By faith. Then all that that name means in Jesus, the sweet sound of the name of Jesus in a believer's ear, that name is for you. So when all else fails you, and all people fail you, and they will, then you can find in Christ alone the comfort and the encouragement you need to press on. Do you comfort yourself or do you wait for the text, wait for the call, wait for someone to do what they should do? So this is not about letting us off the hook as a church, but what sometimes sinners fail to do, then you will find comfort from your God to be with you in that moment, even if no one else is. That's good news, isn't it? All right, look at the the correlation here. With this comfort in the next verse, I'll go back to Psalm 119. He said, I remembered, verse 52, thy, thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Now, this comfort does not exclude 
horror. What is horror? Well, it means kind of the way it sounds. It's first a kind of indignation coupled with fear and dread. What is his horror? What, what horror has seized him and gripped him? That's the word, words take, take hold upon me. It is because of the wicked that forsake the law of God. Horror. Now, it's the same judgments that gave him comfort were the judgments that brought the horror. Why is that? Because when God delivered the Israelites, what did He do? He, he smashed, He judged, He executed judgment on the enemies of God. So in a singular event where the psalmist finds comfort in God, when the walls of Jericho fell, that's encouraging, but it fell on a people and they destroyed them. So in the same look at God in Scripture of His judgments that bring comfort, those same judgments bring horror in the same comfort. It's commingled together. And there's a kind of righteous indignation, a displeasure. The wicked or the proud here that are heaping derision on the psalmist. And a fear. So let's, let's think about some observations here concerning this horror. First of all, this horror was a result of God's love. And kind of I just said that right. It's the comfort derived in the judgments of God that then produced the horror at what that love means in the opposite way towards those that forsake that revelation of God. If the law is a revelation of God and you forsake the law, then you're forsaking the revelation of the holy God. So it's a result of loving God. It's not some wrong displeasure toward the wicked that we shouldn't have. It's because it's against the God that you love. Would you be a little displeased if your wife men were defamed, dishonored, ridiculed, belittled for no reason at all because she's a Christian? That should give you displeasure. Why would it? Because of her honor, your love for her. Likewise, when we love God's law, when we love the revelation of God through it, and we find comfort in the revelation of His judgments, at the same time we find indignation, a displeasure against those that forsake it. Do you find displeasure when God's name is used in vain? Does it give you any kind of, mm, or it's just like, hey, no big deal. Or when you see in our culture such animosity and belittling of the God of heaven, does that give you any displeasure at all? It, the answer could be based on your relationship with God in the Word. Just like if you had no displeasure when your wife was dishonored. The first question I have for you, men, is how is your relationship with your wife? That Something's not clicking. Do you care about her? Now, we would be dishonest if we say, oh yes, every time I see something that dishonors God, I always feel the right emotion. No, we don't, right? Just get that clear and out in the open, so no, no condemnation here. But we should, shouldn't we? The psalmist did. He felt horror because of how riveted he was with meditating, loving, thinking, beholding. God in a regular routine way that, that produced this kind of horror. 
Secondly, secondly, this horror is a motive then to persuade men. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's a terror, there's a fear, there's a dread that Paul understood and knew that then moved him to want to persuade men. The more certain we are of the plight of the wicked eternally and their doom means what? If we know how that doom can be escaped, By knowing that doom and the way of escape, then we are motivated to speak about that way of escape. Right? Spurgeon said about this verse, that those that are the firmest believers in eternal punishment of the wicked are the most grieved at their doom. It is no proof of tenderness to shut one's eyes to the awful doom of the ungodly but to warn and seek their conversion. Right? It's no proof of my tenderness that I close my eyes and say, well, it's just going to be that way. There's no proof of my tenderness. The proof of my, my tenderness and my knowledge of this eternal punishment is that I'm, I want to tell them the way of escape. And what is that way of escape, beloved? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had these two things coming together in his heart by his own words often. He would say in Romans 9.1, he said, I lie not, I tell the truth in Christ. My conscience also is witnessing with the Holy Spirit that what I'm about to tell you is true. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Why, Paul? For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The Jewish unbelievers. Now he's going to, in Romans 9, unpack why so many Jews are rejecting their Messiah. The first reason is they don't want the Messiah. You need to write that down. People get tripped up on that all the time. It's not because of election. It's because their nature despises the Messiah. And then he goes on to tell how any human being, individual, gets out of that condemnation by the mercy and the sovereign choice of God. But Paul knows this, it comes from his own pen, and yet he says, I am continually in great heaviness and sorrow. You wouldn't think that about Paul if he didn't say it. And he brings the Holy Spirit in to confirm it. I, I, I know their doom. I know their depravity. I know their nature. I used to be of that nature. And I know where this is going. And it gives me great sorrow. Do you ever have sorrow for an unbeliever? If they could only see the glory of Christ. Well, if you have the revelation of the glory of Christ, show it to them. That's what Paul did. Paul would say, remember in 2 Timothy 2 verse 9, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer bonds as an evildoer, but the word of God is not bound. Remember the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm in bonds, not because I really am an evildoer. That's the charge. Why are you in bonds? Because I'm preaching the gospel. 
and it's not bound. I'm bound, I'm thrown in chains, but the Word of God cannot be thrown in chains. I wanted to remember that song, and I can't, but that song about the, the, the waves didn't bury the Word. That's not helpful, is it? Uh, Jesus, when He speaks through the waves, and He says, It is I! Or He stilled the waves. Nothing could bury that Word in the wave. Nothing could stop that Word of Christ going forth. Nothing can stop the Gospel going forth because the Holy Spirit transforms hearts in order to believe that Gospel. So what does Paul say? Therefore, because of that reality, therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now what's Paul's theology? He believes in election. And he believes there are people condemned to eternal doom. He believes everybody would be if it weren't for the saving grace and election of God. So what does that motivate him to do? Well, he closes the book and said, hey, it's election, man, forget it. What are you so uptight about? And he says, therefore I endure everything. Prison, shipwreck, beatings, starvation. Everything you read about Paul enduring, he said, I'm doing it for the elect's sake. Why, Paul? Why, why would you endure such hardship? That they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is connected with the gospel. How are they going to obtain it? By conversion, by, by regeneration and infectual call by the Word. See, Paul didn't think it was uncertain that this was going to happen. Because it was certain, he was motivated to be the means. Obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Which means, once a person is saved, guess what's got to happen? Well, they've got to make it to glory. What's going to get them there? The same gospel. The same gospel. The gospel is not a past tense relic that we look back at and say, I, I believe the gospel, that was good for them, and now moving on. It is what's going to preserve you all the way to heaven. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Teach me how to be a better disciple. Okay, let's go to the gospel. Teach me how to be a better husband. Okay, let's go to the gospel. Teach me how to be a better wife. All right, we're going to go to the gospel. That doesn't mean he preached the gospel message or the gospel details of the crucifixion every time, but it's all centered in the gospel. So he's enduring everything for the elect's sake because the elect are going to obtain salvation, but they're going to obtain it through conversion and perseverance of the saints. And so Paul is motivated to persuade, to persuade wicked people because everybody's wicked before they're converted. Even you and I. We're in a state of wickedness, evil, and condemnation. And then lastly, the third observation about this text is what? If we are filled with horror, this horror is not paralyzing fear, it's the fear of the Lord and knowing something about God that gives us indignation over the value of God because the wicked are forsaking the law and there's a dread knowing where this is going. So what's, what's the third observation? If we have this kind of healthy horror, it's, it must be healthy because God is presenting it as a good thing, then what? You don't forsake the law of God. The wicked must have been the proud among Israel because you can't forsake something that wasn't given to you. Now the Philistines had the law of conscience, but they didn't have this revelation. The only nation that had the revelation of God through the law was Israel. And so to forsake the law... Israelites were forsaking the pathway of God. 
Now notice they were wicked before they forsook it. He said, well, that's why they're wicked, because they started right and pure and righteous, and they went to wickedness, and they lost it. No. The wicked are forsaking the law. They're wicked before they forsake it. And so as we see this, we know that the, the inheritance that's forever is for those that believe and keep trusting Jesus. So God keeps us trusting. And what's the upshot of that trust? What does faith produce? Obedience to the Word of God. Not perfection. Not obedience to be saved. Not obedience to get right with God. But obedience because you are right with God. Faith produces fruit. Faith produces holiness. Faith will produce obedience. Not in a vacuum. Not as you sit in quietism and wait. As you move out by faith, the upshot's going to be imperfect obedience and staying on the pathway with God, a pathway that has sin and neediness and desperation for God, but a pathway called the pathway of obedience. That's the upshot. How is your obedience? Do you obey God? Can you point to anything in your life? Say, I am seeking to obey God. I know I'm imperfect. I'm a sinner, and I can prove I'm a sinner, but in my heart, I want to obey Jesus Christ. I want to do what He says in this Word, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to need Him. I need His salvation. I need His help. I need the gospel. I need His presence. I need this comfort that comes to Him, and Jesus is screaming, as it were, from the Bible says, I will give you that. I will carry you. I will be that for you. So he says, come to me, all ye that are laboring and heavy laden. Are you burdened with your sin? Are you burdened with your flaws and your personal failure? Bring it to Jesus Christ. He will gladly take it. He'll bear it on His shoulders. He bore it at the cross. Then He'll bear you all the way to glory. As you become like a little child, a little baby. A man becomes a baby. A woman becomes a baby. And Jesus says, if you don't, you don't enter the kingdom. That's freeing, isn't it? Not if you're proud. Say, I'm not no baby. Well, this is a disposition, remember. I'm not advocating that men start sucking on passes. It just came to my mind. and That wasn't rehearsed, so don't be offended. No. We're men. You're women. Be a baby. Rest in Jesus. Come to Him and you have the promise. I will never, no, never cast you away. He loves you and gave Himself for you. May God be magnified as we seek comfort in Him. Now I only got past the second point. That was not planned. But I'm going to be taking the afternoon service and so we'll finish up, Lord willing, this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Word and Your grace. Lord, we are flawed people. We need You desperately. Lord, we confess there have been times we've blamed others for our lack of strength, lack of comfort, always right there in the Word of God. Lord, we've disappointed each other. We've failed each other multiple times. But You have never failed me. You have never failed this church. You have never failed anyone that's put their hope and their faith and their trust in You. So Lord, be our God. Be the one that fills the empty, comes to us in our desperation, heals the wounded and the broken. And we come just as we are, Lord. Broken, empty, needing healing, wounded, 
But we don't want to stay as we are, Lord. We want to be filled with the presence of your Spirit and be the men, the women, the children, the followers of Christ that you call us to be so that we can find comfort in our affliction and we can find comfort even by ourselves when necessary in the judgments of old, in your word, in the wonderful ways you've worked, and the wonderful ways you've even worked in providence in the lives of the people in this church. All of us can look back. The older we get, the more we can see all the ways you've rescued and delivered and kept us. Lord, we praise you, we adore you, we thank you, and we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.